introduce Scott before he comes and shares with us this morning. So this morning we have three readings, starting from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. So if you've got a Bible, feel free to follow along. But Genesis 1, thanks Emma, 26 to 31. We're considering who we are as the people of God. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Our second reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. And finally, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. 
Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I feel very honoured this morning that we have Reverend Scott Higgins with us this morning. I don't know Scott personally, but I've known him from a distance. I've really appreciated much of his writings. And uh, we've invited Scott to come and speak to us this morning. If you don't know Scott or are unfamiliar with him, just let me tell you a little bit about him. Scott lives in Newcastle, where he's been there for 23 years. He lives there with his wife, Sandy, and three children. Uh, Scott is a consultant, an educator, and a writer. And if after today or Thursday night you're moved by what Scott has to share, Scott will share with you a book he's written, um, as well as a blog that he has, Scott J. Higgins. So if you're interested in um, reading more about what Scott writes, I encourage you to have a look at that. Scott has a particular focus on social justice and ethics from a Christian perspective. Scott's worked for Baptist World Aid for 10 years. Uh, he has started a Just Cause, which is a, an online ministry which seeks to resource um, church groups right across Australia, but particularly Baptist churches, to assist them with tools and resources to respond uh, to issues of ethics and social justice matters. Scott's planted a church in Newcastle and was there for 11 years, and prior to that he was pastoring Caring Bar Baptist. Um, Scott lives with Parkinson's disease uh, and continues to serve the Lord mightily. And so it really is our great pleasure to have you here with us this morning, Scott. We look forward to what God will share to us through you. Thank you for being here. Let's give Scott a warm welcome. Well, thank you for that very warm welcome. Um, Let me just get myself all switched on up here. Uh, Joel just mentioned a book, it's called Boundless Plains to Share Australia, Jesus and Refugees. I wrote this a couple of years ago and I have to keep going back and rewriting it because um, Australia's refugee policy keeps changing, um, but also the statistics keep changing. So we've got a nice up-to-date version. Um, What I did in this book was I basically said, you know, it's really frustrating. People say to me, what do I need to know about refugees in order to develop a Christian response? And I'd have to send them to about 55 different websites or, you know, 10 or 15 different books. So this was an attempt to put into one small volume um, that's easily readable, all you need to know, um, that's a fairly boastful comment I suppose, isn't it, but um, there's an attempt to do that, what you need to know to actually enter into this debate in an informed manner, both informed by what's actually happening in the real world and informed by the scriptures. So if that interests you, there, out in the back there, $15 each, I'll grab one of those. The other thing to say is um, you might notice in the next 25 or 30 minutes I'll I might have some big exaggerated movements or I might, um, I might, some parts of me might tremor and you might think, because I know you're very generous people, that the spirit of God has fallen on me in power. <laughs> I hope that's the case but that's not why I'm doing this or why I'm tremoring, that's just the Parkinson's coming out. I mention that because if I don't, some of you will just get so fixated on these you're going to fall over you know, and, and keel over on us and you won't hear what we're, we're hoping to hear from God's word this morning. So you can put out of your mind that. I'll, I might wobble around a bit, but that's all pretty normal for me and I'll be okay. Oh, hang on, I've got to get the little clicker out of my pocket. Oh, we're up there, great. About um, in 2011, I was in Malaysia 
and I was staying in the most opulent motel I've ever stayed in in my life. I was at an, in an international conference and it was just me and there was this massive suite I was in, in this beautiful hotel. I actually had a roller coaster inside the motel. It was, a, it was astonishing. And, you know, I had this suite that was, had multiple rooms and marble bathrooms and it was a bit embarrassed, to be honest, <laughs> to be staying in somewhere so luxurious. I felt awful about staying in somewhere so luxurious when during that conference I was invited to go and meet some Chin refugees. And so I went across town and climbed up the stairs of this dingy, dark tenement building into this tiny little apartment that would barely house two people in the West, in Australian society, but had three families of refugees jam-packed into it. And I discovered they were Chin refugees from Burma. And there was one guy I met who was particularly extraordinary. It's the spirit of God. <laughs> oh, okay, I see. Yep. Is that better? Yes. All right. Um, so I, was, I, I, I met this family, families of Chin refugees. And I met one extraordinary young man. He was named James. He was 22 years old. And he was actually the head of the Chin Refugee Association in Malaysia, which was about 80,000 people. The Chin are a minority group that live in, in Burma. They are 95% Christian. And interestingly enough, about 95% of those Christians are part of the Baptist movement, which is why I was connected with them through the work of Baptist World Aid. What I discovered from James horrified me. You know, refugees often won't tell you very much about what's gone on and why they fled. James told me that he'd been imprisoned by the military for three months working as a slave in their camps. And one day he saw his slither of an opportunity to escape, so he fled and he had to flee the country. And the moment he stepped across the border um, from his country to Malaysia, he became a refugee. What he didn't elaborate on, which I found out later, was just how hard it was for Chin people in, in Burma. Doctors Without Borders went in in 2011 and surveyed the population and they said, tell us what your life has been like for your household in the last 12 months. So we're not talking throughout your entire life, just give us a snapshot of the last 12 months. 92% of households had had at least one family member put into forced labour by the military. Sometimes that would be for a couple of days, as in the case of James, it was three months. Women who were put into forced labour by the military would labour by day and serve as sex slaves of the soldiers by night. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? 92% of families had that happen to them. 5% had had their home attacked. Wake up in the middle of the night to find your home's being torn down around you. 6% had had somebody experience arbitrary detention. 5% had seen a family member abducted and disappeared. 15% had had one family member at least experience torture at the hands of the military. And 3% had had somebody raped as an act of political violence. That's not in the course of their lifetime, that's in the course of the last 12 months. How do you live like that? How do you live knowing it's only a matter of time until your daughter is raped, your husband is disappeared, your father is tortured, 
you're imprisoned. Well, most of the Chin can't live like that, and they've fled the country in droves. And they've, they've left their country, and when they leave the borders of their country and go to another, they become refugees. The first thing I want to say about refugees today is when you think of refugees, this is what you need to be thinking of. A refugee is, by definition, a person who cannot go back to their home country because it's not safe for them to do so. And the only person who can be called a refugee is somebody for whom that's the case. Economic migrants are not refugees. Anybody who's migrating for any purpose other than fleeing persecution is not a refugee. So when you hear the word refugee, that's what we're talking about. Somebody who's experienced something like this. Well, James went to Malaysia. And it was a little bit like out of the frying pan and into the fire, Malaysia, where I met him. Because in Malaysia, if you're a refugee, it's illegal to work. But of course, there's no social welfare for refugees. So how do you survive? You become an illegal worker. You get work wherever you can. Because you're an illegal worker, you get the lowest paid jobs possible. James told me of incident after incident, where even though they're in the lowest paid jobs possible, um, Chin refugees would go for months without being paid and then employers would turn around and say to them, well, what are you going to do about it? Who will you complain to? If you have children, your children are not, not permitted to attend Malaysian schools. So think about that. If you're a refugee in Malaysia for 10 years, your child can go through their entire childhood without getting any education. You're subject to arbitrary arrest and caning, Constant threat of deportation back to Burma. But perhaps most disturbingly, we had a number of cases recorded where Chin refugees had been kidnapped by, the, by unscrupulous and corrupt police officers, driven to the border with Thailand and sold into slavery. The women sold into the brothels of Thailand and the men sold into the fishing industry. Quite possible that the seafood you eat that you buy down at your local supermarket. A lot of it comes from Thailand. It's quite possible that that's been farmed by a Chin refugee who has been enslaved on a fishing boat. James can't go back to Burma. He can't stay where he is, can he? It's not safe where he is. So he does what we all see should do. He goes down to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees and he applies to be resettled in another country. Maybe he applies to be resettled in Australia. That's his chance of being resettled. Australia resettles. Australia has a great resettlement program. We resettle about 15,000 refugees a year. So the people that we bring from other countries where they're refugees and help them start a new life here. And it's a really good program. But it's only a drop in the ocean. 0.06% of the world's refugees are resettled by Australia each year. And if you add together all the countries that resettle, resettle refugees, it comes up to 0.6%. So James has basically got a 1 in 200 chance of somebody resettling him. Can't go back to where he is, who came from, can't go back to Burma. Can't stay where he is in Malaysia. Yet the doors are shut in his face when he tries to go somewhere else. Now you know why people get on boats. If James got on a boat, he would come to Australia 
well, you wouldn't make it to Australia, actually. We turn the boat back these days, before, if we can, before it leaves um, Malaysian or Indonesian waters. And if he happened to slip through, our policy is he gets put in an offshore detention centre. Now, I happen to know the guy who was employed by the government to set up our offshore detention centres in Manus and Nauru. It was his job to come up with the framework for how they operated. And this is what he had to say. We aim at the deliberate and intentional removal of hope. Take away a person's hope and they no longer have the will to live. The intention is that these hopeless, broken people then send a message back to any family members or friends who might be in transit towards Australia that it isn't worth coming. This is not a lefty, ratbag, you know, activist like me. This is the guy who set up our detention policy. And he said, what we aim to do, he said, basically our brief from the government was we had to make people not want to come here. Well, you've got to somehow make them, convince them that it's better not to come here than it is to stay in Chin State in Burma. How do you do that? Well, we can't kill them. So we make life as hopeless as we possibly can for them. And, and we, we set about creating this regime. This is Australia's detention policy is designed to strip people of hope, to break them down psychologically, to destroy them emotionally, so that people think, I'm going to go to Australia. The head of psychiatric services for the organisation that oversees the healthcare in the detention centre said, as far as he's concerned, what we're doing is torturing people. James can't go back to Burma. He really can't stay in Malaysia. When he applies for settlement somewhere else, the doors slam firmly in his face, and if he jumps on a boat and comes to Australia, he'll be put in a place where we try and destroy him as a human being. What do we do with that, people? What do we do with that? I want to suggest to you this morning, that forget about the nuances of policy in Australia for a minute. We'll, we'll cover that stuff on Thursday night. But look at global, the refugee issue as a global crisis and ask yourself, where does the problem lie? Refugees aren't the problem. They're people who have a problem. Got, they live in a country where they're not safe and they have to leave. But when they leave, this is what they find. They only have three options for a future. One is to return home when it becomes safe to do so. James didn't have that option. One is to integrate into the life of the country to which they've fled. And the third is to re resettle in another country. And here's the simple reality. The international community is not making enough of those opportunities available to people. So last year, 2.7% of the world's 25 million refugees were able to go back home. 2.7%. 0.3% were able to integrate into the country to which they'd fled and 0.4% were offered an opportunity to resettle in a country like Australia or the United States or Germany or France. So do the math. That's about 4% have a solution. 96% like James just stay in Malaysia in a situation of danger and wait and wait and wait. There are refugees who've been waiting for resettlement for over 20 years. And they're in dangerous places. They're living life in limbo. Because the international community, which has promised to, to provide spaces for them, simply says, 
we're not going to. Now, one thing that probably helps people dispel some of their ideas around this is to look at the stats of where, who does host refugees. These are the top 10 refugee hosts in the world as of the end of 2017. The countries that hosted the most refugees. What strikes you about that list? Oh, the, the, the light blue line is 2016 and the dark blue line is 2017. So what strikes you about that list? These are countries that host refugees. There's only one Western nation on there, isn't there? Germany. All the rest are either developing or at least developed countries. The world's refugee crisis isn't being borne by the West. The burden of care is not being borne by countries like Australia. It's being borne by countries like these ones. Turkey has three million refugees. Pakistan, one and a half million. You go down there to, um, you look at Lebanon. Lebanon has a population, I think of, sorry, Jordan has a population of around about four million people. Yet they have a million refugees. Four million population, a million refugees. These are the countries that are wearing the burden of care. Other nations of the world, like Australia, are doing something, but way below what would be required for us to equitably share the burden. And again, we'll pick up some of those issues on Thursday night. So I just want to ask the question, what, what do we do about this? What do we say as followers of Jesus? I want to suggest to you that we need to stop asking the question, who are the refugees, and start asking the question, who are we? We need to ask questions about who are we and who do we want to be as a people? So I want to take you back to those verses that Joel read a little while ago. Genesis 1 gives us this picture of the world as God created it to be. It's this glorious world, you know, called into being. It's beautiful, it's fruitful, it's abundant. It's got everything humankind and the creatures need to survive. And then God creates humankind. He says, I create you in my image and my likeness to rule over the fish of the sea and, the, and to subdue the earth. So we're given this job of managing the planet and its resources after God's heart, aren't we? That's our job as human beings. That's the human mandate, to manage, the, steward the resources of the earth as those who bear the image and likeness of God. So I think what Genesis envisages is that, you know, humankind is meant to spread across the planet, forming these communities that are marked by the things that mark God, that are marked by the character of God. Well, what's God's character? Love, grace, compassion, kindness, generosity, welcome. That's who humankind is meant to be. So I ask you the question, if that's who we're created to be, if we're meant to be a, a planet filled with communities that are full of grace and kindness and compassion and generosity and open-handedness, what does that mean for who we are towards the world's refugees? But narrow it down a bit, because we know the world doesn't operate like that. You know, we walk away and we descend into this spiral of violence and greed and hubris and pushing people out. And God calls Israel and he says to Israel, look, what I want you to do is I want you to be the human beings, the human community, humankind was always meant to be. And you're meant to be like a model so that the nations will look at you and they'll see what it's like to be truly human. They'll see what it's like to live in true relationship to one another, true relationship to me, true relationship to the earth. And they go, I want some of that. And so they'll sign up to worship Yahweh as well. 
And then other nations will see what's happening. And they'll go, I want some of that. And they'll sign up. And therefore, blessing will be returned to all the households of the earth, God said to, through Abraham. That's Israel's mission, to model being true, true human beings. And that's why I think it's really significant, that passage from Deuteronomy that Joel read. You know, God has called Israel to be his people. He's issuing them with his prime directive. And he says, I want you to worship me and me alone. But right smack bang in the middle of that comes this. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you are strangers in Egypt. Don't you think it's really interesting? The Lord your God is the Lord of lords, the God of gods. So what does that mean? Well, in the ancient Near East, most people thought that meant God stood behind the powerful. God stood on the side of the rich. God stood on the side of those who had. God says, because I'm the God of God and Lord of lords, I actually stand with those who have nothing. I stand with those who are oppressed. I stand with those who are marginalised. And in those days, that was the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. God says, if you're going to be the white people, if you're going to be a model to the world of what human community is meant to be, of what life's meant to be like under my reign, this is what you'll do. You'll make space for even the weakest and the lowliest and the most outcast. Yep. But of course, we know Israel failed to fulfil that vision, didn't they? They didn't worship Yahweh and they didn't care for the poor and the vulnerable. And Jesus comes along and he becomes, doesn't he, the true Israel? Doesn't he embody everything God called humankind to be? Doesn't he embody everything God called Israel to be? And so he then becomes the one through whom blessing will come to the nations. And so he sets about forming a community. And I think it's the same message. That's us. We're the Jesus community. Our job is to be what Israel was meant to be, which is to be what humankind was meant to be, which is to be people who display the image and likeness of God to our world. And you see that right throughout the teaching of Jesus. We're the ones who don't walk by the guy on the side of the road. But we stop and we bind up their wounds. We're the ones who feed the hungry, who give drink to the thirsty, who clothe the naked. That's who we are. That's our identity. We're the ones who who love our neighbour. And not only love our neighbour, but love our enemies. That's who we are. Yep, isn't it? And that's what Jesus is on about when he says this, I think. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. You've got to remember this was Israel's calling. And Jesus is saying it's now the calling of his followers. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one ever lights, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the name of your Father in heaven. People will look at us and say, that's what it's like to be under the reign of God. I want some of that. And to be under the reign of God is to be people who say we're compassionate, we're generous, we're kind, we give of ourselves, we look out for the lowly, we look out for the needy, we look out for the oppressed, we look out for the exploited, and we draw them in and we care for them. That's our job. That's our human calling, that's our faith calling.
So I come back to the question and say, in a world where we have 25 million refugees who face terrible persecution back in their home countries, they belong nowhere, no one's owning them. In a world where the international community has said, we will provide solutions for just 4% of the world's refugees, and the other 20 odd million can just hang around in limbo where they're in danger. What is our call? Is it not to say, we can be better than this? We can be the human race God called us to be. And we'll model it in our churches. And we'll think of, to bring it to our world. Yep. Now, I'm not going to go into all the nitty-gritty of what that means. We'll do that on Thursday night. We'll, you'll have a chance to debate it. You know, there's always room for debate over policy. But there's not room for debate, I don't think, over the fundamental principle that underlies that. And this is our principle. So what I want to suggest to you is this. Oh, gee, that's a bit small, isn't it? <laughs> um, what that says is we need to abandon a narrative of fear. Abandon a narrative that turns a refugee into a stranger to be feared for a narrative that sees a refugee as a neighbour to be loved. Abandon a narrative that turns a refugee into a stranger to be feared for a narrative that turns a refugee... Have I just lost this again? I'll just hold... There we go, loop it over me. We're here. What do you do when you do such horrible things to people as we're doing in Manus and Nauru? Do we want to fix this up? All right. Well, we'll just go to here, hey? We'll just, I'll just go to here. This will be fine. What do you do when we're doing such horrible things as we are to those in Manus and Nauru? What do you do when you have to face the reality that we as a nation have a great refugee program, but it's just a tiny drop of what would be our fair share? Well, you make up stories that justify your actions. And so we craft all these narratives in Australia that give us justification for not caring for refugees. Or oh, we're becoming Islamicised. Or these are not the sort of people you want in your country. They're more likely to be criminals. They won't integrate. And we tell all these myths, and they serve one end and one end only, and that's to justify our lack of care. And we'll talk about those myths on uh, Thursday night. You might want to challenge me on some of those. You might see them as valid, but we'll, we'll talk about them. I think the biggest and best thing our churches can do Above all is to say, we're not going to hold on to that narrative of fear any longer. We're actually going to hold on to a narrative of neighbourliness. And we're going to see refugees, not as people for us to fear, but as people God calls us to care for and love. Again, the policy details have to be worked out. But if we can get that basic narrative running, then I think we've got a good chance of doing something good, of being the people we're called to be. That makes sense? We need to start telling better stories. I want to close by telling you one of those better stories. Does anybody recognise that man? His name is Hugh Lee. He's the governor of South Australia. He was also a refugee. Came from Vietnam. In the, the 1970s, the uh, war in Vietnam was over. Hugh and his wife were just young newlyweds in their early 20s. I'm oh, sorry, I need to go back here behind the lectern. <laughs> young newlyweds in their early 20s and, um, 
and they were in danger of being put in concentration camps. That was what's happening to people. I've been put into these camps to reprogram them. Life was very difficult in Vietnam. So they reluctantly decided they'd have to get, get out of the country. So they, they hired a fishing boat with a bunch of other people and um, paid the captain to take them to, they didn't care where, Thailand or Ma Malaysia, anywhere they could land that was not Vietnam would be fine. They got out into the open sea and discovered that the captain of the fishing boat had never taken a boat into the ocean before. He always fished in the rivers. So Hugh drew a map from memory. And he said, I think if we head off in that direction, we'll run into land. And they went off, and it was a terrifying journey. But finally they made it to the shores of Asia. And when they approached countries, they were turned away with gunfire. Turned away with gunfire. Nine times they tried to land. Nine times they were turned away. On the tenth time they said, we're just going to have to make a break for it. So they got close to shore and they jumped in the water while the Coast Guard was shooting at them and they swam for their lives. They wound up in a detention centre in Malaysia, which was much like the detention centres we now run. Overcrowded, inhospitable conditions. And they applied to be settled somewhere, but no one would take them. So they said, we're going to have to leave again. We'll, we'll try Australia, that's the closest place we can get to. So they got on board another boat and they made the dangerous trek across the ocean to Australia. They came into Darwin Harbour one morning early in, I think it was 1977, I think, and it was fog all around. And they heard the sound of a boat coming towards them, an outboard motor. And they were terrified because they thought, this is the Coast Guard of Australia coming to chase us out. But it wasn't was two fishermen in a tinny. 9am in the morning, as was the one back then in the Northern Territory, they were already drinking. <laughs> and this tinny pulls up beside this refugee boat and the guy in the front stands up, he's got his tinny in one hand, he's got his uh, arm outstretched in the other, he says, G'day mates, welcome to Australia. <laughs> it's a funny story, isn't it? Years later, Hugh Van Lee gave a speech to Parliament in which he said this, we were stunned by the warmth and good nature of this laconic welcome. And that one moment in time has left a lifelong impression on me. My personal navigation to Australia had been a combination of dark circumstance, accident, fear, despair, but most of all, of hope. Like most other migrants and refugees, I arrived on this silver shore with nothing but my suitcase, invisible suitcase of cultural heritage and dreams. At another place, another time, a traveller such as me might have been greeted with pure hostility or fear. But at that time, in this place, I was given the unfettered wish and opportunity to show gratitude. What greeted me was a remarkable generosity of spirit. He couldn't say that today. We have to work out the details. There's the hard policy yards to be done. 
But it seems to me the message of our churches to our world needs to be the spirit of generosity that marked Australia back in the 70s has left us. And it's time for us to bring it back. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you welcome us with open arms, even when we were yet your enemies. You receive us by grace. We recognise that the question of refugees is a hard one for our society, but we also recognise that it's one for which you have given us clear and simple principles to love our neighbour to extend ourselves on behalf of the needy, to welcome the foreigner, to do justice, to practice compassion, to be generous. Help us, Lord, to do this with regards to refugees. Help us to craft another narrative that starts not with the refugee as an object of fear, but the refugee as a person in need. And help us to be part of bringing us, our nation to a place where we can once again say that we greet those who are doing it very tough with a remarkable generosity spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.